moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to today's episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. And today we're in for a fantastic conversation. And in this conversation, we're going to take away a ton of important lessons. But the three key questions that we're going to answer in the course of the conversation are as follows. We're going to learn why access to opportunity is the true foundation for success, not talent. We're also going to learn why it's important to not confuse what makes sense with what drives you to make a difference. And we're also going to learn why or how you can't KPI your way to success if your product is people. So a lot of important questions or lessons that we're going to learn in this conversation and the person that's going to take us through that discussion is with us today. And I want to welcome Hamid Bangura to the show. Welcome to the show, Hamid. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it is nice to reconnect. So for those that are going to be tuning in either on YouTube or listening to the episode, Hamid and I go way back. We went to the same university and we met freshman year in poli sci. So it's it's been a long road, man. Welcome to the show and glad to have you on and looking forward to hearing you tell your story. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So we are there. There's a lot of stuff that we're going to cover, but I think a good place for us to start is to have you get the audience acquainted with who you are, a little bit of your background, what you're doing now, the kind of stuff that you're into. So why don't you get us up to speed what you've been up to over the last last 10, 15, 20 years? That sounds good. In that time period, I started off as an independent contributor, as a technical recruiter, covered a wide range of skill sets throughout the years, primarily on the IT side, but it's ranged to engineering, it's ranged to non-technical, it's ranged to executive, recruiting, et cetera. As I went down that road and that journey, it evolved to going into a management leadership roles from recruitment manager, peers of offices to a nano role where I had teams of IT recruiters that I managed. And then it took further steps forward to where I've traveled to other countries such as India, and I've helped build branches there while managing our operations in the United States. And that was predominantly on the IT side. So that's the gist of my background. So it's been a combination of independent contributor, manager slash contributor, full management role where I've been in charge of PNL budgets, et cetera, really helping determine our strategy of a team. And that's also included not just recruiters, but also salespeople as well. In my current role right now, I am working for Amazon US. I deal with a lot of very high level core engineers at different tiers, as well as software development managers, and a bit of a hybrid role where I'm working with the candidates for once they get to the interview stage of the process, everything from offers, et cetera, interacting with the business, working on all the different things that are needed in order for something to get approval, HRVPs, et cetera, and then working with my team. So that's my current role now at Amazon AWS. 
That was a great overview of what your over, overall career has looked like so far. You spent a lot of time in staffing and recruiting in both national and international roles, a lot of responsibility in a lot of different companies. And you're currently in a role where you're recruiting for some highly technical roles in one of the largest companies in the world. But I want to wind this back and, and get a peek into some of the formative experiences that you had growing up and, and get some detail there. Tell us a little bit about where your story started and what was significant about that particular origin point. I immigrated to the United States when I was young from Sierra Leone. I was born in the capital of Freetown and we moved to the United States. The reason why my mother and father and I, we moved here was it was for opportunity. It was for having the ability for access to get an education. And with that, hopefully set yourself up for a higher probability of a good future. But that, we lived in a little bit on the East Coast, but primarily we ended up living in a very small town in central Illinois. We'll get into the central Illinois experience in a little bit, but there was something that you said that was that caught my attention, and that was the, the traditional or standard immigrant story. And I can relate to it because my mom had the same thought processes that, hey, we need to leave where we are so that we can give our kids a better life. And I think that that's a parent's story, regardless of where you come from. Tell us a little bit about the circumstances that caused your parents or your mom to make the decision to immigrate in the first place. Sierra Leone is like many countries in Africa. It's been around for a very long time. Gained its independence in the early 60s from England. And after that happened, there was a period of happiness and freedom in the country. But throughout the years that followed that, it went through a lot of ups and downs and turmoil economically. And with that, the opportunity for things that used to be there as far as education, as far as things that it's easy to take for granted in this country, simple things like consistent power, how many meals you eat a day, et cetera, things of those nature they were becoming more and more challenging. And so at that point, they made the decision that the best thing for our immediate family, and now my two sisters that were born in the United States, was we had a, a stronger path to move forward with those things in the United States. We're still very proud, sincerely on it. I naturalized U.S. citizen, so I'm proud of that as well. But it instills something in you that your success is based upon what you're able to achieve. It's interesting that you mentioned some of these foundational elements of your experience coming from Sierra Leone. And you came over pretty young. You came over at a similar age that I came over from India. But I think one of the things that that is worth digging into is getting a view to the extent that you remember of what was like in Sierra Leone before you made or before you immigrated. And here's where I'm going with this. I think a lot of people who are native born Americans have no concept of what life is like in the middle of a civil war or in the middle of a third world country and what the day to day looks like. So can you share a little bit about what a day in the life of a typical Sierra Leonean might have been like during that era where you had all of that conflict between Sierra Leone and Liberia and all of the stuff that was happening with James Taylor. Yeah, absolutely. At that time when that war happened, I was really, really young. However, over half my family still in Sierra Leone. And so while I was going, my parents would, internet wasn't quite what it is now. So especially for news in that part of the world, it's a shortwave radio that we were listening to and things of that nature, collect calls and everything. And as that whole civil war went on, because it lasted from 91 to 2002, so it was 11 years of that. And it just, it affected 
people we knew, it affected family members. And what I mean by effect, it outside of people get injured, people lost their lives. And when you have something like that happen in a country, it's not something that's easily fixed overnight. And so it was just a very tough circumstance. And I believe with all of those things going on, my family tried to help the best they could with sending things there and everything else. But my, they used that as another motivation for us to try and make the most of the opportunity that we have here now, because we saw firsthand what it was like when it affects people in your family, your country, et cetera. And just to even, and yes, knew those things were going on and I've studied a lot since then. But what, what is interesting, the first time I've been back to Sierra Leone was in, in the, the summer of 2017. I went back for two weeks. So even though I'm, I know quite a bit of things about my culture and everything, and my family raised us to appreciate both things, going there physically and seeing that it, the country's by no means in a civil war now, but it's depending on which economic stat you look at, it's the fifth poorest country in the world. And so you see different things there where you see areas where the people who have money there live, there is no middle class. Either you have a lot of money or you struggle basically in a very tiny area of people that would be considered middle class here. And then as you're walking through the city and in different areas, you notice it like you're like when you see people say, oh, I went to the flea market or something like that. That's very different than how it is in many parts of the world. An open air market for where you have everything where people are selling at this. When I went, it's a lot of goods from Asia that everyone's selling the same things, for example. And it's just it's a very you can tell just by the atmosphere and everything else. People are happy. People are enjoying their lives. But it's a hard life, like, like just simple things of having access to clean water, three meals a day, that's not the environment. And just to give some context for Sierra Leone, for people that aren't familiar with it, it's only area-wise the size of South Carolina. Now it has a little over 6.5 million people. The ways that with that war, how it shifted things in that country, the capital Freetown, when it was initially established, it was only built for 500,000 people. Freetown now has over 1.5 million people living there. So you can imagine when you put that many people on infrastructure that's decades old, that's very problematic. There's a lot to unpack in what you just said. And I think when we're laying out the context for the conversation and a lot of what you're saying lines up with similar experiences without the Civil War part of my immigrant background and story. I think for a lot of Americans that are outside of the experiences that you and I have have lived through, there might be this whole like line of thought that, oh, people in third world countries are poor because they're lazy. And you mentioned something that was really interesting, which was, hey, people are consuming most of their time in figuring out how to get clean water. And that's an example that that I often talk about is that in underdeveloped countries, for an average person to find water, it can be an hour's walk in one direction with a couple of buckets and an hour's walk in another direction to bring that back. So that is a whole different way of being raised or living that really chews up a lot of time. So you could be the most talented person in the world and be a legit genius but if you're spending your time eight, eight to 10 hours a day just getting water back and forth, how much time is left for you to do anything to channel that genius? And that's, I think, the piece that a lot of people don't connect. 
And what's interesting about your experience and your family's experience is that you have that whole arc of being an underdeveloped country. And then you throw a civil war on top of it where you have the Revolutionary United Front fighting against the National Patriotic Front. And if you are in one side or the other, somebody's getting their hand chopped off. It was brutal on top of just already a survival mode way of life. So wanted to make sure that we're connecting at that level and not having it be this cliche immigrant story of, oh, my parents just wanted a better life. Like we're talking life and death in that environment. And I know you didn't connect it at that time, but that was the experience. Yeah, you're exactly right. And to really just even just really drive that point home is there is a misconception as well that if a country has mineral resources, therefore the wealth there is equally distributed across. And it's a myth. So it's not just a Sierra Leone issue. It's around many other countries around the world. And in particular, Africa, we have some of the best diamond resources per capita for a small country like that. Those resources go in the hand of, in this instance, a corrupt government. And so with that, you have these resources that aren't in helping the vast majority of the people. Going back to the water example, Sierra Leone's on the Atlantic Ocean. That's one of the largest national harbors in the world. You would think, therefore, water would be an issue. That's a myth. It's salt water. You have to have resources to convert that, et cetera. So that water is there for a completely different sort of, of, of use than you would think that's going to nourish your body. So there's a lot of different things that are going on there that from the outside, you see the white beaches, which are beautiful. You see the water and the ocean, everything, all beautiful, all in touch. But it's a gift and a curse. It's not really helping the overall country. That's a great point, too. When you talk about all the resources that are available, and I think this is the reality for a lot of the underdeveloped world, is that even though that's, quote unquote, accessible, the rights to those are usually owned by somebody else. If you think about name a country in Africa, for the most part, with maybe the exception of Chad, it's a resource-rich continent. But all of those resources have their rights claimed by pick multinational company X. And you have the labor force in those nations that are basically utilized to extract those, those resources. And then those resources are just shipped off outside the borders. So the people that actually could benefit from access and utilization of those resources, never see any of it because you have a corrupt government and then that corruption feeds all the way down to, we're basically talking about a vertically integrated corruption chain that we're talking about. And the reason why I call that out is that, again, minus the civil war aspect of it, India is very similar. There's always somebody that's looking for a payoff for you to be able to do something. So even if you wanted to, you found mineral rights on your land, there's somebody that is a governor or a bureaucrat that's going to want to wet his beak or his or her beak before you can actually get anything of it. So that two-class society that you're talking about, that's very common in the underdeveloped world. So that's what you described. That was the motivation for your parents moving to the States. I think it's important to just color that in in bold color. So people have a concept of the roots that you, you came from. And it's an experience that's not really, or actually it's an experience that's foreign to a lot of people. And it's important to connect those dots. So 
now you have that whole immigrant experience. You mentioned that I think when you first came over, where did you end up and end up settling at first? And then there was a move after that. Sure. We stayed a short period of time in the DC area. Then we moved to Charleston, Illinois, a very small community in central Illinois in the Midwest. So what, what, how did you end up going from the DC area to Charleston? Yeah, it is. The plan was to stay first in the DC area and go from there because the way it typically works for many communities when you immigrate to the United States, you move somewhere where you have a population of people with similar cultural backgrounds. And then you have your like your little Sierra Leone's, little Nigeria's, little Korea's, et cetera. That's how that happens because now you're able to get like your spices, your food, speak the language, et cetera. And my, my father had our relatives that lived out there and everything. And that was the plan. But what really made the move to Charleston was a couple of things. He, his background, he's an engineer and a lot of the degrees and things of that nature, depend on where in the world you received your education, they're not considered the same as a degree in the United States. So he wanted an opportunity to restart his career. But really what did it also from the personal standpoint, he was concerned with the big city atmosphere in the D.C. area. Is this where I want to raise a family? And so he received a follow the lead or happened to be a company. At the time, it was Caldwell, but now it's Vesuvius USA. They have a plant in Charleston, Illinois. So he came in not as an engineer. But he ended up working on maintenance and all of these other things. By the time he retired, he was the lead engineering supervisor of about 150 people. What Cookson International does is they make the ceramics that are used in the manufacturing industry around the world. They make all of the processes and things like that. So my dad's, his background's on the chemical engineering side. I can totally connect with the reasoning that you described there. Normally it's very typical with, with immigrant communities to move into areas where there is a thing population. Like for example, we moved to the Chicagoland area because there's a big Indian community all over there. There's a big Indian community everywhere. There's a billion of us around. So that kind of happens. But take that initial need for community and then you move to Charleston. And I know that there's a career component that 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 was there for your dad. But talk about not having any sort of immigrant community in central Illinois. Paint us a picture of what that was like. It was challenging. It's one of those things where, at least for myself, I believe it was easier for me to adjust to it because of my age, because I was younger. But as I was growing up in that area, you start noticing things. You realize that your family is one of few in every setting, whether you're the only person of your color in a class or and then you throw in there, you're African. Because at that time, we weren't naturalized as the U.S. citizens yet. So there, there's that element. You have names that no one else has around the area. I don't have an accent now because once my voice changed, I lost my accent, but my parents had a very strong one then and I had a mild one. And so even the things you wear that are normal, like wearing a dashiki that that was, that's normal African attire. Like those things where people were wearing them well before Black Panther. This is part of Africa. But when you were wearing these things, trying to one fit in into a new community, it's a combination of trying to assimilate. So you're dressing the way everyone else is dressing as well. But events, family events at home, you're, it's like you're paralleling two important cultures at the same time. So in a lot of ways, I, looking back at it, it was challenging, but I will say that I'm very grateful for that because I met a lot of good people over the years. Yes, in, in any story, you can point to instances where 
it wasn't pleasant and there's definitely elements of that. But one thing I can absolutely say is we've met a lot of good people over the years. My parents still live in Charleston, Illinois, and good people are everywhere. But yes, it was an adjustment. I'm thinking back to some of my experiences because when my family and I moved here, we moved right around the time Indiana Jones was and the Temple of Doom hit the theaters. And I, it was not a movie that I saw when it was out. I saw it like many years later, but I, I remember several instances because that movie was set in India. It was filmed in Sri Lanka, but it was set in India. And there was a scene in that movie where they're at some banquet of the Shah or whatever, the Maharaja, and they're having dinner. And one of the courses is like a monkey head with the skull cap taken off and they're eating monkey brains. And I would get questions about, oh, you're from India. Like, how often do you eat monkey brains? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm not sure if if there was even that sort of conversation when you're in Charleston, because I have really limited idea in terms of how many people from Africa in general that Charleston people would be familiar with. But do you remember anything from your youth where you had to like really question, like, where is this question coming from in terms of trying to connect what people's perception of Africa or even Sierra Leone might be? Absolutely. It's just some of it was just pure curiosity, but then there, there is a perception because one, people have never heard of that country. So starting with that, let alone not hearing of that. And then at that time, people look at different parts of the world. And I say people, but some people look at parts of the world as Africa is one big country, not understanding how large of a continent that is with over 52 different countries. It's so that like different things like that. There's people like, oh, do you know this person from like South Africa, for example? I'm like, no, it's a really big continent. That would be the same as if I asked someone in Indiana, do you know X person that lives in Alaska or outside of Cancun? Like, it's just, these are very large body mass. So there's questions like that. Then there's this year, other questions of just curiosity, asking things like, did you live in cities? Did, what did you guys eat, et cetera? There is perception also that there's all these wild animals running rampant everywhere. And then when you think about that, at the end of the day, the difference between a jungle and a forest isn't that big. It's just, it's different plants, it's different organisms, it's different animals there, but the concept is the same. But when it's something at times, when it's a different part of the world, it has a mystique to it. And then there's, and I get it, but at the end of the day, it's relatively same. You just rinsed the uh, the questions about, hey, there's probably a perception at the time that there's wild animals were running through there. And it tied me to another pop culture reference. That was also around the time where I think coming to America hit the movies. And that was a fictional country. But yeah. what did you see during the uh, the setting in Africa? And that creates a perception in people's minds that if you have no context, and that's what yeah. you're shown, you're probably going to ask the question, how close is that to reality? Yeah, exactly right. It's a funny movie. It's, a, it's an excellent yeah. movie that makes you laugh, but it was made on a Hollywood set. You've settled into life in central Illinois and you're navigating grade school, high school. You're navigating all of this change. And part of growing up is trying to figure out how do you maintain your identity while also fitting in? What was that? like as you're spending your grade school and high school years in central Illinois? It initially, it wasn't something that I really noticed very much. 
it's just as you get older, like you notice like more of the similar kind of questions. And then in high school, everyone, you know, is trying to, as you get older, you're trying to get confident, being yourself, et cetera. And then you notice, at least for me, you notice that how you stuck out a little bit more, even though it was the same several years ago, but the perception of how you look at things when you're in sixth grade versus 11th grade is different. So it's just different things of that nature. Really, you notice that you started like noticing those things a bit more. One of the things that my parents were really big proponents of, one thing that Eastern Illinois University had is there was is the, the students that they brought in from other parts of the world. And at that time, they did have a number of international students from Africa and everything. So my family always made it a point to let them know, hey, we have a family here, et cetera. And so we got some exposure from there as well. And so you had those elements going on. And then through all that, as you're trying to find your own confidence and things of that nature, you come across many good people, you come across some interesting characters, but as a whole, I will say, I believe that it actually made me better off because I got exposed at a very early age to not feeling insecure that I'm not capable of doing anything anyone else can do. And it really also opens you up to a different culture with if we would have perhaps moved to D.C. and been in like little Sierra Leone there, not saying you can't meet people for different cultures, but it's very easy to run into that mentality where everything you do is just within your cultural group. So one of the things that I'm curious about, and we'll get to the eastern bit of your experience in a second, you and I are both Gen Xers and we're both Gen X immigrants, two different continents, but still immigrants nonetheless. And one of the things that was interesting about my upbringing is my parents drilled into my head. And I don't know how much of this is, is purely related to an immigrant story, but it was basically work hard, keep your head down, don't rock the boat and just excel in everything that you do, but don't draw attention to yourself. Was that similar to your experience navigating high school and going into college, or was there any key differences in terms of how your parents instructed you? Yeah, it was very similar, actually. It was all the things you said were try your hardest, do your best, move to this country, not just for you, for you to be a role model to your sisters, so for you to drive your career, et cetera. And education was of the utmost importance. And my dad instilled in me very early, and I say my dad, but also my mom, it was, you can only count on what you're able to drive yourself. We, we didn't give these opportunities where we were from. There is no 1K there. There is no government help. There is no student loans. None of that exists. You have to survive basically on what you and your family can produce. And keeping that mindset was one of the things where my dad, he never gave me a congrats. You got to be. So why didn't you get better? Like there wasn't a big, my mom was super excited when I graduated. From it, high. So I think one of the correlations, I think with India and also Sierra Leone, they use the British system. They're, they're British colonies and the British educational system. With that kind of mindset, it's okay. What did you do? Just simply getting like a C and passing wasn't enough. What did, why did you get this? Why did you push yourself to do more? This would lend itself to some really interesting research. So the social science research, where you take a look at uh, immigrant experiences and tie that into educational achievement. 
and the relationship between parental guidance and kind of how that drives it, because it's uh, it's amazing how both of our experiences are very similar, even though we're from two completely different continents. So now you're uh, now you're at Eastern, home of the uh, Fighting Panthers, or actually home of Tony Romo and yeah. and the cradle of coaches. So we have that there, but you did, you weren't there for football. You stayed close to home. I'm guessing that there was some sort of sense of community that was associated with it. What, why didn't you decide to go to U of I or some other place? I wanted to be far enough away from my parents where they couldn't visit me in a day's notice. So what was the calculus for you to go to Eastern versus someplace further away? Really the big thing is sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And what I mean by that is by meeting the oldest of my siblings, I was the first person in my family to fill out a FAFSA form. I filled that out myself. I went through the application process by myself and I, the school in town was Eastern. So got accepted in there. And then some of the other schools like U of I, by the time I realized there was other opportunities, it was already, it was a little late. It was like, you could still come in, but it's at X cost, et cetera. And so really just by going through the first time in my immediate family, I believe I made it easier for my sisters moving forward. It's it's amazing how many parallels there are between your experience and mine. And I'm really wondering, like, I'm the, even though there are college graduates in my family, I'm the first one to get that stuff through in the States. Like my dad got his master's degree and all that sort of stuff. But when it came time for me to apply and what the process was, you're a Gen Xer just like me. Yeah. We probably spent more time raising ourselves than our parents raising us. So we had to figure this stuff out and there wasn't really anybody that we could ask. I remember one, one instance where I asked my, my high school guidance counselor, how do I solve this problem? Cause I got accepted to some pretty big schools. I got accepted to Stanford and I think it was Brown that was, a, that I was accepted to. But the only thing that I could look at was the price tag per year. And I was like, how am I ever going to pay for this? And I went to my counselor and I asked him the same question. I said, hey, I got accepted to these two schools. And his question to me was, how are you going to pay for it? I was like, that's why I'm coming to you. You're supposed to know stuff. Like the whole idea about loans or grants or any of that sort of stuff, it was just, it, it was pre-internet or very early internet. So you couldn't just Google all the answers. So it's really interesting that you just shared part of the reason why I ended up at Eastern is because I just had to figure this out. And by the time I realized that there were other options, it was too late. Because you needed the thing then going through it, you're right. The internet wasn't what it is now. Actually, it wasn't even really a source, quite frankly. And then so going through that process, while my family and I were looking at schools because there was other ones that we thought, hey, you'd have a really good shot to get in there, et cetera. It was just strictly on the final cost. And even when I, my high school counselor, when we were going through asking questions, it wasn't looking back at, I believe, the best advice in the world. It wasn't like what schools you apply for, this and that, you have good grades, good test scores, et cetera. It's, are you sure you want to go to college? So there's that little element of that. So therefore, from that aspect, I realized what we realized what that was. So it's a matter of our, we need to do this on our own. So now you're at, now you're at Eastern. And winding back where the story started, when you're talking about what you're doing now, you're, you've been in all sorts of staffing and recruiting and human capital management sort of roles, but that wasn't what you pursued when you were at Eastern. So what was your game plan when you got to Eastern and how did that change over the years? 
Yeah, it, it was realized once I settled on a major that it, political science drew my attention. And as you're going through that path with the Bay team, et cetera, and then the courses were staking, I realized oh, I really like politics. And But the, what's interesting about political science, so drew me, the title is somewhat misleading because it's not just politics. You're learning government. You're learning and you get a little taste of, of liberal arts across the board on different components, whether it's in the past, the current, or potentially the future. So as I was going through that journey, one of the areas which is where some people political science go is law. And so I then became pre-law, et cetera. And then from there, I was like, I'm not quite sure what I want to do, but you'd be good in law school. You like the bait and going down that road. And then I took the journey from there to a law school at St. Louis University. You and I met at Eastern and it was in, I think, an intro to poli-sci class or something like that, a 100 level course. Yep. And I think you went the forensics route and I was in mock trial. So we had different sort sure. of intersections there, but both of us had the plan to go to law school, you actually ended up going. I actually had a couple of other things happen where my parents bought a business and I had to help run that. So I put law school on hold. And what's interesting is that you fast forward, both of us have spent significant time in staffing and recruiting. So it's interesting how these paths of ours seem to converge in different areas. But what I'm curious about is you ended up going to law school. And that is, and you went to St. Louis University, which is a good university and it's not cheap. So yeah. you went to law school and then you ended up not becoming an attorney. So what's the story there? That is correct. Yeah, I went there looking back at it because it seemed like the right thing to do. It seemed like a good profession and it is a very good profession. It's just while I was going through there and my, my academics, I went there on a partial academic scholarship. And then after my first year, I was a law clerk and I worked for a judge in the civil equity building. And then as I built a relationship with him and everything else, we were talking and he asked me a question, which I'll never forget. He's, do you like being a lawyer? Is that something you see yourself doing? And I had never really quite thought about it like that. It's like, well, I'm in law school. I'm going to get my, do my three years, become a lawyer and have the white picket fence. But it made me think. And what I found out as I really thought about it, I realized that I lo loved the knowledge. I loved get, getting that kind of experience and et cetera. But when it came down to the nuts and bolts of what the legal profession is, I realized that it wasn't my passion. And so I made the tough decision and, and I decided to walk away from law school. And needless to say, my parents thought I was crazy, but I think it's one of the best decisions that I made personally for myself. We'll pick up the, the best decision part in a second, but I want to sit in this a little bit because I think at the time, St. Louis University was probably like $40,000 a year, which yeah. is not cheap in it's not cheap now and it certainly wasn't cheap back then. So you're no, at least all. you're at least 2 or 3 years into that exercise. What was it about that question that made you realize that this wasn't for me? It, what about that question was even though I hadn't thought about it from that perspective before, it's the passion I had for learning was different. The knowledge and being curious was always there, but it felt more how do I position myself? How do I write this to position myself so that you can become in, in, in the journal and things of that nature? It got away from just the way that I looked at it, like I'm going to learn this so I can do this, et cetera. Because one of the things that I thought I wanted to do is I wanted to be an immigration lawyer. 
But when I looked at the, the, there's a very political side of many grad schools, but in particular law school, there's a reason why you see most people in Congress have law degrees. It's not on accident and just, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just when I started like being, is this what I want to do the rest of my career? I just started, I started having questions. And so as I build that relationship with the judge, when he asked me that, and the reason why he asked me that question, because years later, I asked him what made him do that. He's like, look, I have no doubt that you would be a good lawyer, but it's, do you want to be an average lawyer? Because it doesn't seem like it's something that your heart is set on. He's like, you have, need to make that decision. Do you want to be another person going through the motions for going to take, or do you want to find something that's more a, a more of your passion, more of your true interest, because that's what will be, will allow you to be the better version of yourself. At that point, you're, you're pretty heavily committed from a financial perspective. How did that conversation with your family go? Because I can imagine how it would have gone with mine. It wasn't, it wasn't good. It didn't end for well over a decade. Every opportunity should go back or what about this? Or, and that just was an ever ending conversation, but it literally took about a decade before that stopped being brought up on a regular basis. So law school's out, being an attorney is out. And so now what are you going to do? Great question. And by somewhat of uh, pure chance, I saw an ad and this was at the time where a lot of the positions that you'd come across was in the Sunday paper, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. There's ads there for Aerotech. And you really, it's really hard to do research on what you're being interviewed for. So I needed a job. I needed to see what I was going to do next. And I didn't know anything about staffing. Didn't even know that even existed, et cetera. And I went into this interview, not essentially knowing what they do and took a chance. And I, I essentially stumbled into staffing. That's pretty common amongst a lot of people who end up in staffing because it's very similar to how I ended up in staffing is... I had no idea that was an industry and I interviewed for it and they painted me a picture of what could be in terms of what you can do on the sales side of it. And that connected with what I was already doing. But you're in sort of a different scenario from what I understand. This was your first job was a staffing job coming out of law school, right? Okay. So how did you adjust to going, doing really heavy intellectual pursuits in law school to basically an industry where the solution to any problem is to do more grunt work, make more calls, send more emails. That had to be mind-numbingly challenging for you. I grew to fall in love with it, is the accurate answer. It was a challenge initially because it was a completely different mindset, but I was in a circumstance of where trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And it was an opportunity where I could see very early on, the big component of all staffing is your desire to, to communicate with people, to help people. Like it's that aspect of it that helped me even at the beginning when I, quite frankly, wasn't a very good recruiter, didn't know what I was doing, et cetera. But I didn't have any issues with talking with people and talking with people that I've never, ever interacted with before. And so it was definitely a learning process. And so my approach when I got in there is when in doubts right now, work everyone. And if you do that, you get better at it. You start getting confidence. And then also too, it also helps you on a financial standpoint as well. And it just really clicked into one of the things I like doing is I like interacting with people. And then with that, you're helping people at the same time because you're talking about careers. So I'm a very competitive person. And so like getting those wins and getting those opportunities and things like that. And one of the things that many organizations do, but in particular, the Legis Group Aerotech at that time is 
it wasn't just get a rack, fill a rack. That was an element of it, but also too, you were expected to meet the people that you're contracting with at lunches, the people that you're working with, et cetera. So it still had that human component, which helped me balance it out as I was going through my, my growing pains of being a recruiter. So I think one of the things that you described that's interesting about your staffing experience, you described it as I, I grew to love it. And as I did more of the work, it really tuned in my desire to help people. Here's the interesting thing that I'm curious about is that staffing, the way that you, the best way to describe staffing for people that aren't familiar with it is people selling people to people. Yes. Like your product is a person. And one of the things that I would always have issues with when I've been in that space is the overemphasis on just raw metrics, raw activity. And it's, it comes out of the Lean Six Sigma approach to it, where you can machine a process and a certain amount of inputs will yield a certain amount of outputs. And that's fine in theory. That's not how people work. So how did you reconcile those two things and stay in the industry? Because that focus on metrics or that overemphasis on metrics drives a lot of people out of the industry because my personal opinion, the overemphasis on metrics in staffing and in sales in general is, is not really the way to solve the outcomes that you're trying to reach. Yeah, that's a great point. And this is a stated that I grew into it. It got to a point where I grew out of the industry. I love staffing for a little bit. And I went into especially pharmaceutical sales, vaccine sales, surgical sales, where it was more, I felt that I actually was a consultant. I felt that I could have conversations with people because in environments, in some environments I've been in my staffing career, that overemphasis on metrics and KPIs, it, it can take the joy out of what you're doing because your goal is I need to hit a thousand calls per day to hit this goal there. Now it, it really kinds of, it numbs you and it takes away the natural conversations we have. It takes away your curiosity. It takes away that helping aspect. As I've been able to find organizations, I've been able to grow and things of that nature. I've been able to find a balance of that, but it is something that you have to make a commitment to do because many of the organizations that are in the industry it's different people from the same organizations that have been multiplied thousandfold. So you have a lot of the same elements there again and again. One of the interesting things about what you just said is it has to do with the degree of focus. What's interesting about staffing as an industry is that oftentimes there seems to be much more of a focus on activity versus outcome. Yeah. And you and I are wired very similarly where we're obsessive about the outcome. Like generally when I lead people, unless they're like super junior, I really don't care what you're doing from an activity perspective, but the right side of the column needs to line up in an appropriate way for it to make sense. So I don't care how you get to the right side of the column as long as you're being ethical. Yeah. The upstream activity doesn't really matter to me unless you are very junior. So how did that inform your staffing career and your career in general in terms of where you stuck around? For me, it was an important stand that I needed to make for myself because it's very easy in the industry to look at people as an arbitrary number, to look at everything in a transactional mode. And I think that's dangerous. 
talking about humans, just like you and I, and you're talking about an important part in most people's lives is whether they consider a job, a career, act a permanent job. It's a very important aspect. And I think it requires you looking at as I am helping people out. It doesn't mean that everyone you talk when you're moving forward towards a job, you're going to fill a wreck, et cetera. But I believe if you look at it from the aspect that truly when I speak, what is important, every interaction I have is important. Being able to be transparent and you build that over the course of time, it goes from wow, I don't want to cold call or I don't want to talk to this person. I don't want to send this. It turns to this is just outreach, good outreach. How do I get to that good outreach? It's not, from my perspective, the person who makes a thousand calls a day and just goes at it in that manner versus the person that has a strategic plan and really looks at it as, well, I am just an advisor. I am someone that's just part of their journey. Even if I don't place them, placing them is just a bonus. But if I'm providing value to them through our interactions, through giving some candid feedback and I'm listening to them as well, it's a win-win growth opportunity for both of us. So that way, not just stuck on, I need to get this placement, I need to get this placement. It's There's something really great about what you just mentioned about, hey, having the overemphasis on I need to get the placement and shifting the mindset into, hey, how can I help this person? Because the reality of it is, and this is where it clicked for me, and it clicked pretty early on is, hey, I can do the activity for the activity's sake, but the object of the exercise is to figure out how it can help this person move their career to the next stage that they want to try to get to. And unless I'm focused on that thing, because that's the outcome, it's not about, hey, can I get the placement? It's how can I help this person get to that next level that they want to get to in their career? So I think that mindset shift is something critical that all staffing people need to have in mind. If you're just focused on just doing the raw activity and how can I get to a placement, that type of recruiter is a dime a dozen. And they usually wash out every six to eight months within every staffing company that you can think of, because that's just, that's not how you build sustained success. I mean, this has been an awesome conversation and it was great getting a much more deeper view into your journey and your career journey. Before we close down, what are the most important lessons that you want people to walk away from after hearing your story? Ah, great question. It's been a good conversation because that's it at the end of the day. It's a conversation. And if you look at it like that, when you're having good conversations with people that you're working with, whether you're on the sales side or the recruiting side, the mentality of looking at it is just truly being an advocate for the person that you're there. And some of that does require some tough conversations. Yeah, but you can still do that with respect. But I look at staffing. It's one of those things where on the surface, it looks like, oh, it's just a simple job. Just like many jobs, that's not true. There's a lot of different nuances there and different things. And even with being experienced like that I am and you are, Jim, it's one of those things you have to constantly keep on learning more and making adjustments, making pivots. And it's those kind of things as well, on top of helping people that allows you to stay in this industry and really make an impact. And I think when you look at it from that manner, you don't get caught up in those metrics. So if you're doing the right things, you naturally will hit the goals you're going for. Never lose sight of treating people like humans. Don't ever forget that human aspect. That's one of the key things that really helps you just, one, enjoy this career and really make sure you're advising people in the right manner. Two, 
you need to be flexible and pivot throughout your career. What you did yesterday doesn't isn't necessarily going to work a year from now or six months. And the third part is we all take unique paths to get in this industry. There's not one path that's better than the other. The beauty of it is once you look at this in the right manner, it's very fulfilling. And yes, there will be challenges. And yes, but there also be far more elements of success that you can get for yourself and you're helping people drive their careers. So really great stuff. And I especially like the your advice about find what fulfills you. And I think that could be broadly applied to any industry versus doing the logical thing or doing the thing that quote unquote makes sense. Hamid, where can people find you? Yes, I'm on LinkedIn. My, my full name is Hamid Bangura at, at Amazon AWS. And please feel free to reach out to me. I love networking and just connecting with anyone, whether you're in the industry or not. I appreciate you hanging out with us for a while. There's a lot of lessons that can be broadly applied to anybody that's navigating a professional journey. So for those of you who have tuned in for this episode, we appreciate you listening. But leave us a review. Share the episode with your friends. We want to make sure that we are redefining what success looks like and helping as many people as possible advance their careers further faster. Thanks for joining us on Cascading Leadership and tune in next time for another great story. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.